Welcome to the Eurasian Americans. We are on episode 80, and today I am so, so, so excited to share my conversation with fellow podcaster and producer James Boo of The Self-Evident Show. Before we get to our conversation with James, got two quick uh, asks for you. One, if you have not yet, please subscribe to the show, whether you're listening to us on Apple, Spotify, Google, Amazon, or elsewhere. Uh, please do subscribe to us so that you get these episodes um, as they are released every Tuesday. And two, uh, please join us on Facebook on our community page, community group. Uh, just search the Eurasian Americans community. Uh, that's where you'll get to meet me and the other listeners and fellow supporters of the show as we discuss uh, topics related to the show, as well as general Asian American issues. Thanks again. It's only 21 days until now Election Day, so make sure you're registered to vote. If you live in a state that allows for early voting, please do so and encourage your friends and family to do the same. Here now is my conversation with James. Hey everybody, welcome to the Asian Americans, wherever you are, whenever you may be listening to this. We wish you all the health, happiness, and safety in the world. Please stay safe. We're still in the middle of the pandemic as we record this right here in the middle of August. Um, we still have time to, I think, you know, curb the the massive damage that we uh, might be headed towards as we go into the fall and straight into flu season. So I know the weather's nice. I know it's summer. You know, sports are back on, but stay home, folks. Stay home and listen to podcasts. Stay home and listen to Asian American podcasts. And it has been a, quite a year for Asian American podcasters following in the footsteps of very great and very widely distributed and celebrated other parts of the media landscape. And so I know for a fact that this year, um, having started this show, having started many other shows and engaging with the wonderful community of Asian and Asian American podcasters, that we are taking this opportunity to spread our message as far and as wide as we can. And from the notes and letters that we get back from listeners, um, particularly from places you may not expect, like Indiana and Ohio and uh, Texas. We're doing something right because I know that people are um, hearing our message, perhaps for the first time, of what it means for Asian Americans to tell our own story. So one of the most, in my opinion, badass projects that are out there, and in my opinion, one of the best produced, planned, and marketed shows out there right now when it comes to Asian American storytelling is The Self-Evident Show. And so, 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 so excited to introduce to you and share this conversation with James Boo, producer of Self-Evident. Hi, James. Hey, thanks for having me here from across the country. It's from across the country, uh, but I do think that our places and our times have uh, somewhat overlapped at times. You are from, uh, you You and I grew up not too far from each other down here in yeah, Southern California. Yeah, that's right. Um, so, you know, our- North Orange our County. North Orange County, where uh, people who are not familiar um, this is how Korean Fullerton was. Uh, the school district sent letters home, English in the front, Korean in the back. And this was in 93, 94. It was pretty Korean. And I, I think, I can't imagine how school administrators back then would have had to react to the what was probably a sudden influx of Korean Americans or Korean kids coming in. They had to like hire Korean staff members to, you know, deal with parents and translate and do all this other stuff. So I, I think the um, the America that at least I grew up in Fullerton, it's probably not, it's not unique, but it's also probably a little bit different than uh, for some of our listeners for whom they may have been the only or one of very few um, Asian Americans where they are, where they grew up. So share with us a little bit about Self-Evident. Uh, let's learn a little bit more about the show and, and sort of the, the reason and the, uh, the, the beginnings of it. And then we'll learn a little bit more about you. 
Sure. So Self-Evident is an audio program for Asian American stories. And it's a journalistic and good documentary style reported show for the most part. So we have a variety of different kinds of episodes. Uh, we launched our first season last summer, uh, 2019. Um, and so that's something anyone can listen to right now in their podcast feeds or on our website. Uh, there's no order to this show. You know, it's it's a collection of different kinds of stories and conversations with people. And so, yeah, if you check it out, you're listening to this, uh, whatever seems interesting is what you should listen to. And the show basically presents stories about Asian Americans from Asian American communities that reveal something more fundamental about our society, our country, the lives and this moment, this entire moment, some people define it as like the Trump era. Some people define it as, of course, now, right, um, a new civil rights movement. Um, but we are in a moment. And so it just started with that recognition, like so many people um, have had in one form or another. And the reason I put it that way is because it's not a topically Asian show. Like, we're not... To be very straightforward, we're not here to highlight and celebrate Asian people. And like that's not that's not the direct format and mission of the show, because we're more interested in things that are complicated, uncomfortable, and just go places you don't want to go sometimes. And so, you know, we do stories about deportation, um, and not just about the deportation and how it is often unjust, but about how it requires you to have a certain mindset about who's good and who's bad in your own community, being a Vietnamese American, being an Asian American. Um, and the story is basically our way of just trying to put people in other people's shoes. This is something that when we were researching the potential for doing an audio program, we just asked people to tell us what they listened to. And at the time in 2018, I had been just listening to every Asian American podcast I could find. and when we started sending surveys out and asking people, nobody named an Asian American show. They all named white shows, but they named uh, white and to, to certain other degrees, POC and black shows as well. But they were naming programs that were story, uh, that were story driven programs. Uh, and so, you know, we all love stories. We all love narratives. Um, we all want to be immersed. We all want to be embedded and, and like to be moved, right? In that way. And so the reason I say that is not because it's like the it's, a, it's not better, right? There is such an important role for a podcast to just bring voices out and give them their full authentic space and then have real conversations. Um, but when we started the show, we saw that this is actually a resource problem. The reason you don't have these kinds of stories that are really going deep into Asian American communities is because there's no money and there's not enough talent. And anyone who has a talent will work for an NPR, will work for a WNYC, will work for whatever podcast studio, Gimlet, on just a bigger general audience show. And unfortunately, the way that you present a quote unquote Asian show is that you flatten people and you turn it into a quote unquote national accessible show. And so one thing that's been really great to see is we took this one path of just essentially saying public radio is not going to solve this problem because it's a resourcing problem. It's a money problem. It's that yeah. decision. It's not that they don't think our stories are important, although of course you're going to come up against that a lot, but it always comes back to these power structures of like, we make this decision because the audience has to be this big in these terms that we refuse to tear ourselves away from. Uh, 
and, and think of something different. And so it's been really great because we've just kind of burrowed in and focused on this kind of work. And in the meantime, so many other podcasts have come up that they don't need those resources, to be honest, like they can just do fine <laughs> and accomplish success. And that's great. And we kind of um, made that bet that we said at this point in time, there aren't a lot of Asian American shows when we started, but they're going to be a lot. Yeah. There's no way there cannot be a huge explosion. And there has been, and it's really gratifying because now you can spend time with any kind of Asian American community because the technology is more democratic and people know how to speak for themselves, you know, as you all understand. Yeah, you know, we we see a lot of similarities between the initial early years of YouTube. And if you look at who got very big on YouTube, when they started their partner programs, um, you know, the Wang Fu brothers, uh, AJ Raphael, David Choi, those were very talented friends of ours who didn't get the invitation to uh, spread their love and their craft on traditional medium channels. So they said, well, here's this new thing. We control who gets to see it. And we know that there's a market for it. So um, I agree. I think we are um, in perhaps the most exciting year of sharing our stories. And unfortunately, you know, I, I think if you look at the success of a, not just Asian American, but any specific demographic show, um, it's a little bit difficult or perhaps unfair to measure it against traditional metrics as you would for a mass market show and to say, well, how many downloads do you have? How, what is your reach? Because we know who listens to our show and it's a very specifically Asian American demographic, at least with our show. And so the, the resonance and the impact that we know that it leaves on individual listener, I think is, you know, on, on a per listener basis, far greater than listening to, um, as great as they are from a content and production perspective, some shows that appeal or have to appeal to, to a much, much broader audience. Um, thank you for that context. I, I think, you know, I've listened to the show, um, really enjoy the format. Um, it's beautifully done mixing in pauses and interview inserts and, and music and having produced shows here on my end, obviously the level of producing a show with that much complexity is so difficult, so time consuming and requires many, many hands and hours. So kudos to you and your team. Um, I know there's a, a team of you at self-evident that work very hard to produce these shows and know that there's at least one really, really happy and grateful listener out there uh, who <laughs> appreciates all that work that you do. So we know what, who, who James is now uh, in 2020 and started in 2019 and 18 as, as a um, producer of, of this show, but would love to learn how it all came about. Um, share with us in your own words, sort of how the Boo family came to America and became Korean American and then started down this journey. So the story that I have is it's, it's fairly incomplete because I'm just not that close with my family. And there's a lot of complicated reasons why I haven't prioritized um, learning more of my own family history. Um, we can talk about that. It's one of my, and I wouldn't say it's one of my favorite subjects, but like, it's something I, I find fascinating um, in and of its own right. Cause I think one of the other things that struck me about starting self-evident was that I grew up in a suburb with a lot of uh, firstborn American, I don't know what you call them, second gen, or I would say second generation, right? The firstborn in the States, mm -hmm. people who are the same on paper. So my friends, Korean parents, Taiwanese parents, Indian parents, um, for the most part, and we're totally different. <laughs> so, so I think a lot of times we have these preloaded ideas of like what a 1.5 gen person must feel, what they have experienced, what a second gen person, a first gen, whatever it is. 
But even within those groups, like totally different experiences, ideas of like who we are, um, the, the connections we have to our history, because it just comes down to your family and, and, and all these other factors. So what I can say for my parents is that they emigrated from South Korea uh, in the 70s. Uh, my dad is from Jeju Island. So his, his mother was a Hanyu. I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right. It's a Hanyu. Um, so she's basically, I think they're called mermaids. Mm-hmm. This kind of working class, badass fisherman woman who just gets up every day and goes and just like catches a bunch of seafood. They are so, badass. If you've ever been to Jeju, you see them and you're just blown away. Just, yeah. And so that started a long, long, long history of um, every time we're eating any kind of seafood with my dad, he has to talk about like things he used to eat when he was a kid. <laughs> uh, nonstop. It's always the same. Always the same things. And uh, my mom uh, was from, I think, the Seoul area. Um, they met in college and um, got married in Korea and then came over to pursue just, I think, a different kind of life. That's the part where I'm a little more fuzzy. I know um, a lot of it had to do with the idea of just having more autonomy and more economic freedom. They came from very big families. My dad was the youngest in his family. And my mother was kind of in the middle. Uh, and there... A couple of my mom's siblings came over as well, but I don't think anyone else from my dad's family. I mean, most all of them are all his siblings are passed away at this point. Um, but he was the one who like came to America. He was like that guy. <laughs> um, and I think it was part of that. I think it was part of a path of going from the island to going to the city to going to you know college right. and then and then just trying to go up and up and up uh, and then came to America. And so they believe moved to Koreatown at first, just like so many people in in Los Angeles and had a very fixated um, path like so many people do. Uh, They had college educations. My mom was a nurse. So they had a path of let's, you know, get a house, go to the suburbs, have kids, put them, put them through school, like pretty straightforward. And so that's pretty much what happened. Uh, My brother and sister, uh, I'm the youngest of three and they moved out to the suburbs just outside of San Gabriel Valley. And I was born in Diamond Wire, which is the town that I think is as old as I am. It's like a pretty young town. And I spent the first 17 years of my life there. I didn't really leave a 30-mile radius, I think. like Sometimes we would drive in back to San Gabriel Valley or go to Orange County or something. But for the most part, my childhood was my street and my school and then my room and my friend's house and uh, the TV. <laughs> Diamond Bar, for, for folks, uh, to give a little context, it is pro- predominantly residential, um, mm-hmm. not a whole lot of industrial or, um, you know, business districts, although it is surrounded by other cities that are. It is also, as your family did, home to a lot of other um, Asian Americans. And I think one of the very few cities that isn't dominated by one ethnicity, but rather a decent mix of Chinese Americans and Korean Americans, at least I guess even geographically, it's sort of where those two communities meet. How, how was that growing up? I mean, how were your um, influences like? You said you had an older brother and a sister. Was there a lot of Asian American influence in your life from a cultural perspective growing up in Diamond Bar? I would say no. And the thing that I think about is even if you have demographic diversity, that does not create a shared culture. Um, we grew up in a white town. Um, I grew up, um, we moved a few times around the same town, but... Uh, the park around the corner for me was Ronald Reagan Park. We were born during the Reagan years um, and grew up in, you know, Reagan, Bush, um, and eventually Clinton. But this, Orange, Orange County, right? 
it's like the land of Nixon uh, in California, the state that used to be fully Republican and very <laughs> white taken from Mexico, right? So um, there were all kinds of people around me. I mean, not so many black folks. You know, there were we had we had black families in town, but they were just a very small minority. Um, and when it came to Asian American exposure, yeah, everyone had their parents, right? We were all um, kids whose parents had been the ones to make the trip over and start new lives. Uh, but this is also diamond where we're talking about, right? So I think the proper context for it is it's a ladder climbing town. Like mm. you go there to, um, if not culturally assimilate definitely economically assimilate and try to assimilate into the power of white flight. Uh, and my parents were real estate agents. And so there was never a moment in my childhood where it wasn't obviously clear that their whole kind of ladder of success was premised on you get away from black people and brown people <laughs> and their neighborhoods because the property values are low. And then you sell property to um, Asian folks who pay in cash or white people. And then you can go to a good school. Um, it wasn't like it was malicious, of course, um, in their intention, uh, but it was an intention, right? So I see that not as an Asian space. I see it as very much um, part of that bigger American story, which I guess is why you see me making this kind of show. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think it's 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 complicated, right? I think we um, it's it's funny you 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 sort of. Uh, went back and forth on the number of generations and, and I do too, depending on mm. how, how we count. Right. So I, I was born in Korea, came in when I was eight. So I consider myself one and a half because I don't behave like a first generation born in Korea, nor am I technically a second born here. Um, but if you talk to different parts of Asian America, uh, when you're born here, you're the first generation. And, and so even that, how we count generations and how we view ourselves in the American context differs greatly depending on when you came and then from what country you came and where you ended up at. Um, but I do think that in that generation between um, our parents and us, we went very rapidly from this pursuit of survival and trying to figure out how to make it in America. And so I think words like assimilation and, you know, just being American was for sort of, if not the goal that was always in the pursuit of. And then for those of us who were educated here and, and grew up very American from a cultural context, we were lucky enough to not never have to really worry about survival. And so we were lucky enough to pursue things like making Asian American podcast and, you know, identity and things that if one were to, you know, imagine a uh, Maslow's hierarchy of needs a little bit higher on the totem pole of survival needs. So coming from Diamond Bar, um, you went to a very liberal place to go get your college education. Um, why Berkeley and what did you want to study there and what did you want to do in choosing Berkeley? The way that I applied to college was really stupid. I basically looked around. I looked at the prices of all the schools and people were applying to like Stanford and Harvard and I just looked at the price tag and I just like, what the fuck is this? Like, how do you do that? Why? How would you get the money to do that? Where would you... So, so then I looked at the UCs, which at the time UCs used to actually be a good deal and they're still a relatively good deal now, but like, it's not even close. Better and when so, we went to school, of course. Yeah. Way better. Yeah. And 
So I basically applied to three UCs and that was my entire college application process, which was ridiculous because if I'd gotten rejected from the schools, I wouldn't have gone to college. I would have just had to wait for a year, I guess, or something. Uh, so I applied to UCLA, UC Berkeley, and UC San Diego. And then I got into the schools, fortunately. Um, and then Berkeley was the weirdest and furthest away. Uh, and I had been there before once. My brother went to Berkeley. Hmm. And so I had actually, actually, I had no conceptions or impressions of, oh, I need to be this kind of person. I want to go to this kind of school. The first thing was just like, these places are all affordable. And then the second thing was, I got to get as far away from here as possible, but I, I have to be able to afford it. And Berkeley was obvious. The last thing I would say that did play a role was I, I visited my brother's graduation uh, a few when I was in middle school. Mm. He's seven years older than I am. And uh, at the time, I remember the town was kind of cool. And then all of a sudden there was a naked dude walking down the street, <laughs> never seen like a man just with no clothes on in public. <laughs> and so I just crossed the street and then it's like, what is this? And then I just kept going. And then I told my you know English teacher about it and she thought it was funny. And then I think I remembered that when it was time to apply for college, it's like, I want to kind of go to the place, but you just walk around naked. Like, <laughs> I mean, now that I think about it, you know, those, these were conversations I had in my head when I was 12 and then when I was 17, but uh yeah that didn't age well <laughs> maybe in berkeley there is still i mean naked men and women i'm sure they, were, they have a streaking tradition like all these things that happen in colleges but um yeah he was just one of those characters and then uh the characters of berkeley something that you could talk for a long time about so <laughs> what was the culture i mean aside from the naked man which i'm sure like you said probably still happens in berkeley um more, more often than anybody would like to witness what sort of realizations about yourself in terms of identity and what you, your, your chosen path might've been. Um, did you realize in Berkeley going from a place like Diamond Bar and obviously a little bit more open-minded environment in a place like Berkeley? You know, I think there are a few things. So the first is that as soon as I got there, and I hope this happens to everyone when they go to college is that you just realize you're, you're not very smart. You're less smart than you think. You go there and you're just like, oh my God, look at all. You talk to anybody and you realize just that the, the distribution of the population is just completely different than you thought. Uh, maybe that's showing that how much I thought of myself in high school, which, which was too much. But that happened on day one. I got to Berkeley, started talking to people and just said, holy shit, like this, everyone here is smart. You know, then you go to a frat house and you realize that's not true. But uh, that, that <laughs> happened right away and it was very humbling. Um, and it never, I was just completely shaken. Like I never, I, I, I don't know if you, if you go back and talk to some of those folks you and I know from coming up to my high school, like, yeah, they'd probably describe me as being like super condescending and arrogant about, uh, cause I was into politics and I wanted to do all these things and I thought everyone was an idiot. Uh, and then it just took one week at Berkeley to just end <laughs> that for good. Uh, so that happened right away. Uh, the second thing that happened there was I just really learned how to live in situations where no one gives a shit about you, which is like, this is what I, the, this is what I would say about public schools. Like there's a, there's a part of it where the whole point is that you want equity, but I think there's also a part of it where sometimes you got to learn that there's not fair. It's just like, life is not fair. The system's not fair. Um, you have to learn the system. You have to deal with it and you're not always going to get your way and you have no entitlement. Uh, ironically, right? Because public school is a, is a is a value of entitlement. 
to the basic uh, necessity of education. But Berkeley is a place that chews you up and spits you out if, you, if you're looking for someone to, to, to guide you. Um, and so what you have to do if you need help is you have to find a community of folks to really um, be, build relationships with, to, to really have a space. And the mm-hmm. great thing about Berkeley also is there is a space for everybody. It just might not be easy to find. But any kind of person you think you can be, this is my memory of it. It may be outdated, but it took me a while uh, because I, I, I didn't have all of that set out for me in school, but it was like fairly straightforward in, in K-12, like mm-hmm. in Downbar, California. In Berkeley, you just turn loose and um, yeah, some people crash and burn. Some people get really, um, have a really hard time not having those stepping stones kind of more clarified or having more support. Um, and it can be you know, in a serious way, like not having proper mental health care and like things like this. But I think it's just a great lesson because when I got to New York, which is another place that really doesn't give a shit about you. Um, <laughs> I was, I was emotionally, I think, and mentally prepared to do what I wanted to do. And, um, you know, I've been here for a dozen years and people say that's a long time. I still think it's not healthy in the long run, but it was because I went to Berkeley, I have to say, because it just really taught you how to be self-sufficient and then right. ask for help and, and create help with other people when you need it because the system is not going to do it for you. Right. I, you know, you, you mentioned two places that are, uh, I guess, proving grounds for just real life. And depending on where you come from, in your case, as in my case, was a very, uh, I don't know, so sort of a everything is taken care of for you environment, whether it is within your family or just sort of in, in a suburban area that's um, where you don't actually go through a whole lot of uh, challenges because that's sort of, you know, the environment that our parents wanted to grow for us to grow up in. I had a similar experience. I actually went to New York high school or high school in New York. So I left Fullerton after junior high school. Um, that, is, that is rough, man. Went to high school in New York City. <laughs> And then came back to LA to go to USC. So, you know, I, I think more than us, my brother and I, like my mom had a hard time adjusting because yeah. she was the Fullerton mom that drove us everywhere. And all of a sudden I was like, what do you mean I can't drive you to school? Or what do you mean you're just going to take the subway home? And for her, it was a, a bit of an identity crisis of that's how she showed her love as a mother by providing transportation and, and taking care of us. And that was taken away. But when you do, you're right. Um, it is a time in your life where you have to figure out, you know, almost you're forced to figure out how do I survive or how do I get through certain things? Um, one, you just get super ninja senses, right? Like you just become hyper aware of your surroundings and you have to be, but you also learn a lot about yourself and and I think self-awareness in terms of, um, health and what you need and how you need to be taken care of are, are things that we're not necessarily challenged with in more comfortable environments. Um, so I, I think that's really, really good context. How did you go from Berkeley to New York? What did you do right after school? And, and what, what passion led you to New York City? I'll jump ahead and just say that there's no passion that drove me to New York City. Um, there's a lot of um, myth-making about what New York City is and how you got to go here and you do these. Like I had very close friends who pursued that passion. And I just had nothing to do, really. I... After school, I went into a language fellowship program in Russia. Um, wow. The, the plans there did not turn out as uh, expected. And 
So I had a half-baked idea of what I wanted to do anyway. And then um, that uh, completely went off the rails. And so uh, when I got back, I from, from, from that program and from traveling a little bit, I moved in with my parents. I had some debt. It wasn't that much because, you know, as we said, two things, UCs were very cheap and my, my parents supported me um, to be totally transparent. And so I didn't have that much uh, debt. It was enough where I could just be like, let me just park here for a couple of years and just get mm. whatever shitty job I can get and just pay this off because I don't want to owe anybody anything. And so I tutored at a C2 education. I don't know if you know C2 education. Of course. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, I, I worked there for about a little, like almost two years. It was uh, a grueling, I learned a lot there. There's no place that I've worked in. I'm sure you have the same experience where you, where if you take it seriously, you don't walk away learning something and, and having some kind of experience that's meaningful. Um, but yeah, that was a terrible place and, uh, I'm sure it still is. And <laughs> I, I did that job, uh, you know, after schools four days a week and then Saturday. And then my friends had moved out to New York and, uh, it turned out one of them had a cheap room opening up and, mm. um, it was the bottom of the recession. And I just said, well, you know, I, I've paid off this debt and there's nothing here for me. And there never was in Denver anyway. Um, I've just been here just because I felt it was a smart thing to do. And so when the opportunity came, uh, I just went out there um, and then was unemployed for seven months. <laughs> Let's go back to Russian. Um, how did you discover and fall in love with the language enough to study it and go there to uh, take on a fellowship? I studied political science and you and me are the same age, right? So the first week of college was 9-11. And at least for my term, right? I had a third day of school in the dorm, just got to this new environment. And then you wake up and everyone's like brushing their teeth in the dorm bathroom. And then somebody says, hey, it's like someone just flew a plane into the World Trade Center. It's like 8 and something so, a.m. here, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And so it, it, it was just whirlwind of comp trying to comprehend what was going on. And because I was going into political science, it ignited this um, really interesting era where everyone was trying to figure out like, oh, can you turn, can the United States invade a country and turn it into a democracy? Which the answer is no. Of course, uh, plenty of people said that at the time and people should have listened. But um, when you get into those questions of like, well, what are we doing in the world? Why are we trying to force our way into certain countries and under this pretense? And if the pretense is, that America can create democracies and democracies are good for the world. Uh, well, we had a big, uh, long era of our history where we were opposing an undemocratic uh, world power. And so, um, yeah, studying the Russian and Soviet Union's political system became like a thing I was fascinated with. It was a way to contextualize um, mm. a lot of what people were trying to do with American power at the time. And then it naturally exposed me to Russian language um, and then at that point, I just had enough credits where I didn't really need to take other classes if I didn't want to. But um, I started taking a language class. And then I realized that I'm going to UC Berkeley. Average class size is humongous. I mean, even when you go into upperclassmen lectures, like you're talking about a couple hundred people. And then like I go to the, in the morning to this classroom with like five people where we're telling each other like where we were born <laughs> and uh, what color that person's shirt is and like all these super basic things. I think it was kind of an interesting way to be re-socialized because mm. that was a process that was a mixed bag when I was a kid. 
And so uh, it became very enjoyable. And then the more and more I, I learned the language and the, the more I realized I also didn't know what I wanted to do, I just doubled down and kept studying until uh, it became part of my degree. That's fascinating, Dan. That's, yeah, I, I mean, obviously, I, I think we sort of, I don't know, we're going through so much shit this year. Like the last time we went through collective shit was like on that day, which for a lot of us really shaped the way that we um, look at America um, relative to the world and then perhaps ourselves in that. Um, that is cool. Um, are, are there parts of your life where you're continuing to practice language or things that you learn from that part of your life that are still helping you today? Nope. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I learned, I learned a lot. I mean, I, I, I don't know how, how much time you want to apportion to this, but like, you know, I, Russia, the reason I, the reason I left that country was because they have a giant racist hate crime problem and a bunch of uh, neo-Nazis tried to stab me to death and then they did not. And then they killed some other guy. And so that, the... that is a, an experience wow. that kind of completely changed in that moment, like what I would, thought I was doing and um, has had a long-term impact on how I think about uh, racism and how I think about problems and solutions, but it was all also still embedded in my understanding of um, kind of social and political problems as being systemic, you know, having studied uh, the Soviet Union and, and American history and things like this and political systems. And so that that that's a big part of my life. But no, I speak in the language, man, it's a hard language. <laughs> and that's... keeping it up is is tough. I'm still fascinated by the fact that you you studied that and, and that culture and that language because I think in um, particularly in today's uh, socioeconomic and then political climate, um, its country and at least its leader easily demonized and never really studied pragmatically. It's just sort of like okay, there's Russia and there's Putin and you know he's weird uh, or he's evil or however you see him, and so I, I think it's super fascinating and I'm sure in some conscious and perhaps some uh, subconscious ways, it still impacts, you know, the work that you do and then sort of the way you view the world. You always wrote and created content throughout your time, particularly at your time at Berkeley, right? You, you wrote for the paper. And since then, um, in official and unofficial capacities, you continue to write and create content. Where did that love of writing come from? I just think it's about agency. I started writing when I was, so, so probably like the second half of being four. Um, like I, I picked up writing pretty quick and, and, and reading. So I, I started writing when I was very young and the first 10 years of my, of my life after learning to read and write was all I did was read and write. And I was extremely shy. And so first grade, everything I wanted was in the bookshelf in the corner of the classroom. I didn't want to talk to anybody. I didn't want to, to do any games or whatever. I just wanted to read all the books and then write stuff. So I, I don't know what the deal is. I think it has to do with being fixated on maybe it's just loving stories, you know, from an early age. Mm -hmm. um, but also I don't, I don't ever see them as being separate. I always remember reading and then wanting to write something based on what I'd read, which, sorry, I always remember reading and then wanting to write something based on what I just read, which meant when I was a kid, I wrote a bunch of stuff that was just a copy of someone else's. <laughs> it was really, uh, really bad writing. Um, but yeah, I've been writing since I was uh, like four or five. 
and um, particularly the writing stories. They would just be super dumb, simple stories about like a wizard or something that like was like a paragraph. Then it became a page and it became five pages and then it became um, all kinds of other things. And so to me, it's all in the world of thinking in, in narratives and thinking in expression. And that is, a, I always am a little shocked at how little exposure people have to the act of writing and the discipline of writing. Um, and that, that people can find it to be mystifying sometimes. Um, which is, un, you know, it's, it's, it's unfortunate because you can get a lot of power out of, out of writing. Mm -hmm. I think it's just a way of taking your thoughts and then making them clear. And it's an ever go, you know, it's an ongoing process. And so all that is, is all stitched together. It all, it all comes down to even now writing scripts for, for the show and doing it. It's, it's, you know, um, it's not the basic, it's not the most basic form of content creation talking is, but um, it is one of the most basic forms of content creation. I think we, when we think about content creation, whether, you know, it is in the form of a podcast like you and I do or creating YouTube or, you know, social media stuff, we, we put it on this like, oh my God, you have to create content that is so well thought out and strategic and yada, yada, yada. But if you've ever written the, an academic paper or if you've written the journal or a blog about personal blog where you've created content, you've expressed your thoughts onto a paper and whether anybody reads it or not, that's not the point you've let it out and you've memorialized it. And so I think that skill is such, like you said, it, it's something that we don't really think about. Um, and particularly writing now, actual, you know, pen to paper writing because of digital, everything is probably something that we could all be doing a little bit more of. Um, perhaps in COVID times, people are writing more at home, can't go out, can't do a lot of all that fun stuff. So Maybe you have been relegated to writing at home. Um, but I do think that it is a, a good, it, it's such, it's cathartic, it's relieving, and it, you know, brings a lot of different creative juices that simply don't come when you're sitting in front of a screen typing the same things. Well, I would say that, I mean, to me, I, I haven't written on paper in forever. I, I actually don't think it's so much um, the, the medium that matters. I think it's just that, you know, you always meet people who hate writing. <laughs> and that that's the whole other set of reasons that, that I'm actually curious to know more about. I just want to spend a day talking to people who hate writing and want to understand why. But what I understand is that we are rarely expected to think about what we want to say and then present it to somebody unless it's someone having essentially having power over you. Right? And so if, if you go through an education and then a workplace where every time you're writing is because you're satisfying someone else then of course you're going to hate it. But even more, if you're trying to express yourself to, to your friends, your family, and socially, and you only can do it through kind of like these technology-mediated channels, this is why I think you made me realize why I hate texting so much. Because <laughs> it, it's the opposite of writing, right? It's not making your thoughts clearer. It's, <laughs> it's like you chop up whatever you happen to be thinking for about five seconds, and then you throw it out, and then everything is, is ensconced in this very unsatisfying reaction. Um, and, and it's kind of also embedded in these tech companies designs to like make us addicted to getting messages. Sure. And it has nothing to do with expressing yourself. Um, that's a broad generalization, but I think that would be my <laughs> theory of why I hate texting so much. It just, it, it, it it's, that's fascinating. It, it's, uh, in some ways it is natural. And, but to me, it feels like the opposite of what I've always wanted to do, 
which is a sit with something and then think about it and then and then write it. Do you prefer to just still call people? Yeah. So what you and I grew up with no texting. I think texting technically came right. <laughs> for for all the young folks listening. Let me tell you a story. Look, we had to pay for text, pay per text. You have and, to and pay for school. text, and then you had to um, use numbers to cycle through the letters for every word you want to spell. <laughs> um, I, I think primitive or primitive, Jesus Christ, uh, early phone plans were something like um, you got a, a finite number of texts and then anything over was extra, whether you received them or sent them, which was crazy because if people sent something to you, they charge you for it too. And so um, I remember, I, I forget who it was, but I had a friend that would like, she texted like people text now, like one word per message. And I was like, yo, couldn't you have just like put an entire sentence together so it saves you and me some money? But, you know, <laughs> but we had, we had to learn texting, right? So, you know, if you're in your 30s, you didn't have that. So I, I, I agree with you. I think texting was something that I got much more and more comfortable with. I resisted it for a while. I, I, I saw it as informal communication. I saw it as something you do with friends, but not with people that you work with because it wasn't as you know, engaging or didn't have that human personal touch. So yeah, I, I think it's, and I, I can't imagine like where we go in 20, 30 years from now when new technology emerges that, you know, even further informalizes, I guess, or makes more, I guess, less friction in, in that communication space. This is fun, man. Well, the texting, like, I actually think we're, what we're in, it's, it's like, you know, when CGI started mm -hmm. and like, you go from having incredible practical effects, like the peak of, of Hollywood practical special effects that like so lifelike. Uh, and then you have CGI and it's like total garbage. Like, I think that's what texting is. Like, I don't think it's just, I think it's actually primitive. Um, and, and as years go on, we're not going to get, it doesn't go on a trajectory of things just get worse. Like it always get worse. But I think um, the, the fact is the way that we use social media and these kinds of communications, they're pretty crude, actually. They're not that sophisticated. Um, and it just happens to be what I would point to. It's, it's just about the profit incentives and like what the tech companies want us to do with this technology. Um, I'm sure the technology can be much more engaging and like true to human contact. Um, and hopefully it will be in the next generation of kids will have tools that are not just like a nightmare for them socially. Um, and it's just a healthier place to be and communicate. Speaking of communication and actual long form authentic storytelling, as, as we started the show with, and then if you, uh, I guess by now you already know that both of us produce podcasts. How did podcasts come into your life? Um, what, do you remember the first one you listened to and why you fell yes. in love with the medium? Yeah. Well, so right now, as we're speaking uh, in this great year, 2020, um, there's a podcast right now called uh, Nice White Parents. Hmm. And um, it is about the role that white parents and communities and wealth and power play in the dysfunction of our education system and, and our greater society. And the producer of that podcast is Hannah Joffe Walt. And Hannah Joffe Walt was one of the first podcasters I ever listened to because she used to work on a show called Planet Money, which was one of the first, it was the first podcast I ever subscribed to in 2008. And it was a program that NPR spun off in kind of a loose way to answer people's questions about why is the economy so fucked up? And it just kept going and going and going. And it's still going today. And they have a spinoff show, uh, The Indicator. I still listen to that. And um, yeah, I have so many good feelings about like, I, I, so many of those folks went on to do so many interesting things. Not all of them are nice people. 
But uh, Hannah Joffe Walt is amazing. She's one of my heroes. Um, and she's done so much work in spending time with schools, spending time in school, spending time with the actual people who have to deal with life in those schools and not looking from the outside in, but just really understanding like what's really going on here. And that's like, I don't have a lot of professional dreams, but like being able to spend that much time and then clarify how the world works in mm. these very specific ways that have big ramifications is a big and motivation. It's, and then for someone like that to do it so well, and for me to have been listening to her for uh, 12 years yeah. um, is something that I'm really grateful for. So podcasting has been around for a long time, it's relatively long time, um, longer than most people think it has. You've been a fan and a listener for 12 years, as we were just talking about. At what point did you start to think that maybe I want to produce a podcast and create one of my own rather than just listening? I, I had a hunch. Basically, I was um, working on documentary video for a while. I had my own series, um, and it was a big project for me for four years. Uh, and I was also, this, this was something I was doing while I was still working full time. And so I worked at this abs absurd tech startup company um, for eight years. And I was listening to more and more and more audio programs and, and new podcasts throughout this whole time. And I was watching less and less film and realizing that like, oh, I actually really enjoy this format or this medium a lot more. And I had some audio equipment that I had been using for this documentary work that I was doing. Mm. And then I decided to start interviewing coworkers anytime that they quit. So I have a collection of interviews, uh, maybe like 20, a couple dozen of people on their last day of work um, from a place that was a ridiculous place to work. <laughs> um, and I started doing a, like an underground show where I would release it to like the people that I was close with at the company and the people who, were, who participated um, in these just kind of two-way conversations um, talking about what was it that they thought they did? Why are, not about like the gossip or things like that, but like trying to document something that I thought was, it's just a strange place. That's that nuts. Maybe I mean, somebody you, could learn something about. Did, did you sell it back to the company? That sounds like something they- The company doesn't exist you. anymore. So I, I don't have <laughs> shit to say. I, I could, if I could get releases from these people, I could just do the series. Like I, it's an archive, right? It's, a, it's an old history yeah. of sorts. I did like four episodes and shared them. And then I just got too busy with like doing the other creative things I wanted to do. And it was more of like a lot of, ways of starting things you just like can i do it okay sure why not try it it's not going to cost that much money to try right um, and it shouldn't if you if you you know do it the right way so um that was yeah my first experience of interviewing people for audio particularly i had interviewed plenty of people for film um, before yeah. that and yeah and, and then so i so that was a fun thing that has never seen the light of day and <laughs> crazy Maybe it will someday. It's backed up and, and it's just an archive. I have, I have other projects that never ended up finishing. But the idea for really seriously doing a produced show, like the ones that I enjoyed listening to most, um, just emerged from my completing the video series that I was just talking about. Mm. And having made a leap of faith away from my day job, you know, I quit that job in 2017. I worked and finished, I worked on and finished my doc series uh in 2017 and then going into the next year uh i just had a general sense of like if you're gonna do something new something different in a documentary style spirit uh it's got to be something more meaningful and bigger than the last thing you did 
Um, that's kind of the only measure that I have. Um, all the work I've done has always been independent. I don't really have any interest in working for HBO or any of these companies. Not to say that like they would hire me, but uh, it's not a career for me. It's just about well, what's the work that could make a difference? What's the work that could bring the best out in people that no one else is making? If someone else is doing the project, why would you try to get in there and get in the lane and take mm. up the space is my general thought. And so... I started talking to a bunch of other Asian American folks in New York, just trying to get an understanding of like, what does everyone think about Asian American representation at this point in time? And then narrowing in, what do people think about hearing stories about the places we come from and, and the people we are in audio? Have you ever listened? Have you ever heard anything? For most people, the answer was no. And so it started a research process uh, and then a recruiting process and then more research and then more conversations with people about like what's missing here. And that's how we arrived at the kind of commitment to do a show like what it is today. Thank you for doing that. Cause I think on the, you know, continuing down the path that you paved and we all many, many amazing members of the community have paved is part of the inspiration, important part of the inspiration that helped me after years of saying, I'm going to start a podcast to the point, I'm sure my friends were like, oh, sure. It's one of those things you're always going to do. And then at some point earlier this year, basically saying, fuck it, I'm going to do it. And, and here we are, you know, 70 some odd episodes in. Um, and that representation fact that we started or we talked about earlier in the conversation of this is supposed to be democratized content. Why aren't we being represented? Right. Is it do we always blame the market and saying that the audience isn't there? But it is there, but you have to look at it from a non-quantitative perspective to say, is there a meaningful audience? Of course, commerce is a part of it, right? Which I think, um, you know, I think prevents a lot of people from thinking about it in the first place of, I'm gonna put all this work in and if there's little money in it or what is the motivation behind it, I'm not gonna pursue it. Um, you were gracious enough to spend some time with members of our team here um, at Just Like Media in helping uh, contribute and, and give your insight and perspectives to a research paper that um, we're going to be releasing later this year, specifically on Asian American podcasting. And I would say that thanks to the work that you've done and other folks have done that um, the desire to listen to Asian American podcasts and the activity of people who do listen to Asian American podcasts is significantly higher than it was in 2018, but we still have a lot of work to do. Right. Um, and, and so it's, you know, these are some of the motivations that, um, I had when I said, you know what, like, you know, like we mentioned, like you and I are the same age when we were younger, when we were even in college, we didn't really have a lot of Asian Americans doing cool stuff. And when I say cool, I just mean non-traditional stuff, right? They don't actually need it to be cool. Like just different things that weren't, doctor, lawyer, engineer, or first-generation entrepreneurs that just had to do it. And so back then you needed permission to ask for radio time, to ask for space on a shelf to tell your story. And now, thanks to podcasts and other internet-related medium, media, we don't have that. And so I started looking around and saying, why, who, whose permission am I waiting for to share more of our stories? And the real answer is, that's the wrong questions to ask. The wrong, the right question to ask is why do I need somebody's permission to share my own story? Right. And I think the motivation was also 
spurred on by the fact that I have two kids now, one, three, one, one. And if I don't do something about it, if we, if not enough of us do something about it to change the narrative of putting a ton of our voices out there into the universe, are our kids going to have the same exact conversation that you and I are having about identity and not enough representation 20 years from now when we could have done something about it today? And that, like, and I, I found that to be unacceptable that after, you know, we've been here now, I moved here when I was eight, so uh, close to 30 years of being in America, having kids in America and being born here, if our kids who are actually American don't have enough resources and role models, personal and through storytelling, that they can believe they can do whatever the hell they want, um, then I think we've sort of failed them as a community because we had every opportunity to, right? Um, we are the most educated, the most wealthy, the most, all these metrics that, you know, give us the opportunity to share. And so... Well, I would it, say a, a couple things come to mind, which is, I, I want to go on the record as saying lawyers are really cool <laughs> and engineers are great and doctors are literally keeping our entire society from falling apart. <laughs> no, I'm um, not... Okay, so this is yeah. not... So, yeah, no, the, I... Not, not, not an not argument. To, not, I just want to go and for, no, 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 no. for the for the world. I, yeah. <laughs> You, you don't want to get weird hate me. I look, I, <laughs> I, uh, I have doctors in my family. I have, uh, friends that are obviously, you know, the level of academic discipline and focus that goes into pursuing those degrees. Amazing. Right. Don't take anything away from them. And it is amazing that so many of us have gone down that path. But at the same token, I wonder how many artists, how many creators, how many, you know, entrepreneurs, um, are stuck in a courtroom or in an office somewhere um, because it's sunk cost now and they don't really, you know, for every Ken Jeong that actually literally quit being a doctor to go tell jokes and make movies, how many are uh, resenting their parents and not really feeling fulfilled in the work that they do as respectable and as financially healthy as their day jobs may that give them? Well, that, that's the key to me. I think that the reason I bring it up and, and go out of my way to say that is because I'm just tired of the dichotomy, right? I don't think it's it's something that I really think is important um, and is the meaningful kind of like, I, I think often people will say going into the arts or going into entertainment or going into media or just anything that's not these um, kind of stockpile positions is a form of liberation. But I think that like, there are plenty of people in media who are stuck and it's even worse. <laughs> <laughs> um, the, the thing that it gets you stuck is not the discipline, it's power, right? If you are stuck doing stereotypical roles and you are not permitted to truly exercise your craft as an actor, I take being a lawyer who can, you know, get <laughs> people out of jail, like I, I and fight, fight, the, fight the power, um, any day. So I think like, and, and, and when, uh, and so I, I, I think for me that the really important distinction isn't so much um, if if you can feel you can do anything you want um, because you know people have if people do get to do whatever they want like they often choose things that aren't what they say they want <laughs> um, or what they regret and all these things come out later um, and to me that's because um, the thing that really keeps us stuck is like very rigid definitions of success. Sure. Yep. And, and that can, I see it applying honestly in, in, in any industry, any discipline. Um, I, I, I'm just a generally 
very skeptical person when it comes to entrepreneurship um, from a from an economic and financial perspective. Yeah, you can you can as long as it's something that you said that I think is really important. Um, as long as money's at the center of it, and as long as there is some def, like kind of success failure component to it, then you can find yourself on the wrong side of that, and and you can be stuck with shame. You can be stuck with. Um, all the things that you thought would disappear if you weren't on kind of the straight and narrow track, but they're all <laughs> systems, right? They're all, they're all, um, and, and in this country, especially, they all have their different forms of divisions and, um, oppression. Yeah, I, I agree. And it's, it's, it's partly the, the system and the, the country and then sort of the systems that we exist in and collectively, not individually, but collectively are very well-intentioned immigrant parents didn't really help to dispel those myths Rather, they continue to encourage us to pursue those things. So I think, you know, I realized or decided at an early age and sometime in middle school, like, I don't want to go to med school. And I made it like very rigidly known to my parents. And so I felt like I had to make that big of a voice for them to stop bugging me about it. And at one point in my life, they said, why don't you go to law school? And this was in 2009 during the Great Recession, right? I was like, well, shit, I'm not doing anything. I might as well go take the LSAT. So I did, didn't end up going to law school. And then this last time around, like, why don't you go to business school? And I was like, ah, there's one thing that I actually would probably enjoy. So, you know, eventually, and not to please them or to appease them, it made sense in my life and I would do it again. But, you know, it's always that sort of, I think, unfortunately, some parents tie, you know, uh, pride or honor or things that are positive associations with family and love to specific degrees or job titles or things like that, which um, again, thwart or distort the definition of success and happiness um, in not just Asian American communities, but a, you know, a lot of people. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I think it's uh, cool that, you know, two late 30 dudes grew up in similar area or now, you know, sharing stories over a podcast sitting in Brooklyn and here in LA because the technology has allowed us to connect and, you know, the timing of world events has allowed to uh, create content about relevant topics. And the audience now, hopefully, is finally ready. Our community is ready to listen and to seek out our own stories because um, we're sort of sick of not being talked to and in the right context of things. Um, I, I do want to just quickly touch on the point that I think you made earlier that NPR made Planet Money in 2008, sort of on during the time of people having a challenging time where they felt they needed to seek not alternative, but additional sources of information and to have community over conversation. 2020 is going to be, I think, another time we look back in history as sort of the uptick in the creation and the consumption of more content that is a little bit more democratized. 2020 in podcast world has always also been the most commercialized year if you're following who's buying who and who's paying who to create podcast content. But if you're listening to us and you've always wanted to create something, please do it. You don't need anybody's permission. But if you do need somebody's permission, encouragement, James and I are here to tell you, do it. We'd be happy to support you yeah, however or we just, can. Or just walk down the street naked, you know, in Berkeley. <laughs> <laughs> That, that, that's a different kind of traumatic response to wanting to go start a podcast. Um, so I, I want to learn, so you, you've been 
deep in producing, researching, um, scripting, and working on telling Asian American stories uh, through Self Evident, and now you know on the um, uh, about to launch season two, um, or already having launched season two. By the time you might hear this, what have you learned about Asian America and about yourself during the process? Hmm. I don't know if I've answered this question before or recently. This is one of those questions that you can totally, you can definitely answer this question wrong. It's possible. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I think it's, it's um, earlier when we were talking, I had this feeling that the people that I grew up with who looked similar on paper and might have had similar and generational experiences are totally different. So when I see a thing like, uh, what's that? What's that Aziz and Sari's show on Netflix? Master um, of None. When I say Master of None, and they have these episodes that are are meant to be these universal children of immigrant stories, they're just kind of fake to me. Like I, I don't. We actually don't have that much in common. Um, when you talk about the literal circumstances of our lives and like what pushes our buttons and and like, and so one reason I love audio. For, what, for whatever reason, maybe it's because of the way we choose to do things also, but it, it breaks very quick. It, it very quickly breaks down away from quote unquote, Asian American identity to just these stories about people hmm. and who they are. And I guess something that I've learned even more so now is just how much of a diversity of, of human experience there is and how anything you want to explore in the realm of what the fuck is going on right now? Like what is wrong with this country? What is great about living? What is tough? What is uncomfortable? Like you will find it in an Asian American community. And that happens to be a little, to, to be a little provocative. That happens when you start ignoring the, Kind of templates of like, let's show all our successful CEOs. Let's show all of our uh, successful politicians. Let's show like, like those people are to a certain degree not real. I mean, and, and also it's just kind of uh, uh, they're when you when you filter them through like a format, right? Um, the thing that we're super excited about, and the thing that I think we learned the most from working on the show is whenever we go into a story and we're spending a lot of time with people, you, you really get to know the people, not what they are telling you about themselves, but what they're actually experiencing. And that shows just this huge range of what life is. And I'm being a little vague here, so to be a little more specific, in researching uh, and reporting on these new stories for the new season, I, I often, I've spent a lot of time in community meetings. So mm. I spent a lot of time and it's a gift side effect of the pandemic that like so many local community meetings have to be online now. So that means if I just register for them, I can join, um, a random ass county health guidelines meeting in Virginia, where I'm the only citizen. And there are these five community members because it has to be public. And then at the very end, they say like, wait, who's James? <laughs> like, Hey, I'm a reporter. Um, just wanted to just doing some research. I'm attending a lot of meetings around the country. Um, you know, it's a public meeting. And then they're like, okay. Um, uh. <laughs> but, you know, I spent, I spent time with community-based organizations, with uh, elected official meetings. Um, the, these are all these little places in our lives where decisions get made, where mm. uh, you see what people are really about in a lot of ways. And um, that's fun. 
Um, I don't know if I'm answering your question at all, but I think it's that you see Asian Americans at every level of society if you, if you go looking for it. And I, that's my hope, right? It, it's that we can get people interested in looking for the things that um, most of our society tells us that's not important or that's just someone who serves you lunch or that's just someone who uh, makes this regulation. Um, yeah, they, they all have different things going on and, and they all come together to make this picture, whatever, whatever it happens to be. If it's an ugly one, if it's a complicated one, then um, hopefully at least we can kind of see it with some clear eyes. Asian America is Asian America, Asian American, any of our words, uh, so complex, much more than we ever consciously think about. Um, we always just loosely say, oh, we're not a monolith. But to, to really sit down and think about how complex our culture and community is. Um, yes, it was a term, you know, actually derived from uh, students at Berkeley to bring together our voices for political cause, which we're seeing it now in 2020. We need to, because um, a stronger voice or I guess more united voice is stronger. But we're talking dozens of countries, more languages than that, different religions, different cultures, different immigration patterns, different everything. And so I completely agree with you. Part of my challenge here in creating a show for, I am so ambitious in saying for all Asian Americans is, how do I make sure that everybody at least feels like they can resonate with every story, even just a little bit, but it's hard. I've shared on the show before that I am very conscious because I don't want to have it be a blind spot and have it um, make it easy for me to make sure that we're not uh, hyper-focusing on certain countries, certain ethnicities, certain you know types of diaspora, that we need to be conscious and to acknowledge that every, not all Asian Americans have the same experience, yet there's a unifying concept of having been otherized and having been treated differently in this country. And um, we don't even agree on religion or food or politics, but how do we find still the threads that unite us together so that we can collectively believe in something and fight for something that will improve all of our lives. That I think is a monumental task that we all need to help move the needle ever so slightly. And so I am so glad that you are doing the work that you do. Um, I am happy to contribute to our pie to help it grow. Um, you know, we started the Asian Podcast Network and you've been an amazing member there and helping people uh, support people through their thought process and their show development. And just even seeing the the new members pop in and to grow and to ask questions and to get excited about sharing their own story. We need 10 times that amount because we don't really ever ask other communities, particularly the majority communities, aren't there enough shows by your demographic? We really don't. I think I have a real, now that you're talking about it, I have a real answer to your question about okay. what we've learned. Let's go back to I think that, yeah. To be simple, race only gets you so far. And if, if even when we were talking about diversity itself, like this is maybe not something I would say doing self-evident has taught me, but it's something that is all bundled up, right? And, and this expression, the racial diversity, it, it can often mask I think other more meaningful forms of diversity. And for me, you know, this is a little stereotypical, but it's just about class. And so there's, it all kind of intersects in a lot of different ways. But 
there, I think, are so many more interesting stories um, you can get to know and, and that can really put you in a different place and, and get you to question a lot of different things uh, when you're not only focused on cultural markers or uh, things that are ethnic or things that are racial or, or nationality-based. Um, and at the end of the day, I think it's more of a reminder that, you know, people come from neighborhoods. And when you talk about, especially injustice in the U.S., there is, um, you can see patterns, right, with, with race and outcomes, with race and advantages, with race and um, disadvantages. But the true metric of it is, where were you born? And what conditions were there? Because we do this insane thing of just like limiting people's entire potential to essentially where, where, where they were born and whether the town has enough resources for them right. um, and how it treats them. Um, and so that's why I spend so much time at these like community meetings and, and the kind of reporting that we do is it's, it rarely starts with race. Um, it usually starts with um, just a place. And uh, once you have a place, you know, where people live, where they have to live, where they bring in all their problems, where they bring in all of their challenges, and then all of these conflicts and collisions and hopes and aspirations, um, whether it's a working class community, whether it's a middle class community or whatever it is, um, then you have like the world, right? In that little bubble and you can start to figure out where a story comes out of it. Um, yeah, I don't know if that made sense, but I, I do think race is, is it's, it can be limiting sometimes. In, in trying to really see, um, yeah, I'm just kind of falling apart here. No, but in short, yeah, I, but but it I, is, I, I, yeah. But but I think it's the the challenge. I think that is is hard to express succinctly because it needs to coexist, right? Like race alone isn't it, but neither is socioeconomic. You know where you're born. Like it, they they play into each other. You know, somebody who is Asian or black that is born in the richest zip code still won't have the same life as somebody who is mm -hmm. born next door that's white. And similarly, if for whatever circumstance, a generationally wealthy white person is born in a very, very challenging zip code in the South that is predominantly black, that person is going to have much better outcome, right? Because it's it's not singularly... And, and I guess in the same way that yeah. we talk about Asian Americans and how non-monolithic we are, but how complex we are because there's multitude of Venn diagrams that overlap and we're like in various parts of that diagram. This is sort of the same thing. But I think the challenging thing to, and the most rewarding thing is when we can help Asian Americans, even within our own community, through your show, through my show, and through so many other shows, to remind them, because we all know, we just have to remind them that there's other Asian Americans that have vastly, wildly different lifestyles than you, that come mm -hmm. from different backgrounds, that we can't say all Asians X because there's nothing that falls under that bucket, right? Yeah, so, that's what I mean. Like when I was specifically thinking about Asian American and, and Pacific Islander distinctions, because that's when it becomes a really, when race, I think only goes so far. Cause when you say like, we're not a monolith, see some of us are Indian. Well, like, that you, you've, you're kind of starting at the wrong point, I think. Cause then when you talk to many um, Indian folks, like, wow, you know, there's so much complexity and um, 
there's so much complexity and diversity and social structure to unpack there also, um, even just sure. within Indian American populations um, and then other South Asian countries. Of course. So, yeah. It's one seventh of the world's population. Of course, it's not a monolith, but when we compartmentalize it by by race, it's easy to do that, right? But, or even with, you know, um, you know, e even with uh, our friends from China, like it, it's a large landmass, right? Like, and depending on where you are, it really impacts how your life turns out or what religion you belong to. So I guess it makes our jobs challenging at the same time. We have a lot of work to do, which means that in a way, telling Asian American stories, James gives us a tremendous amount of uh, job security that will never tire or will never exhaust <laughs> ourselves of sharing um, Asian American stories from a multitude of angles. And, you know, again, I'm not sure when people will be listening to this, probably in the second half of August, but, you know, we're just coming off, you know, um, a day's worth of press about uh, Kamala Harris being named to uh, the Democratic uh, ticket as the vice presidential candidate. So, you know, we've already seen a lot of discourse within and outside the community of what does her uh, biracial black and Indian American culture background um, mean for Asian America's voting bloc? Does it energize all of us? I don't know. It, 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 it has excited some people. It has angered some other people. And so even that alone, and we had the same thing when, you know, Andrew Yang was fighting for the nomination. It wasn't identity politics. It was cool as hell. Certainly cool. And my three-year-old son goes, oh, there's somebody that looks like you on TV, right? And um, he thought that he was daddy's friend. That was super cool. But it's not so easy, right? So I, I think for us to continue to meet new people, explore their stories, learn why they think the way they do and how they choose to live their lives, um, it is a never-ending challenge and a mission um, for us to be exploring those stories. And so again, if you're out there and if somebody wrongfully told you that your story doesn't matter, if somebody wrongfully told you that you don't have the right to ask questions and share other people's stories, I want to tell you that they've been wrong and that your story matters. All of our stories matter and that we will never actually get to uh, sharing all of our stories. And I encourage you in whatever way is meaningful for you. Yeah. Um, writing podcasting, shit, even texting, express yourself. Well, even uh, just getting used to like in the, in the era of social media that we're in right now, um, people often assume that sharing means it has to be shared publicly, which is not true at mm -hmm. all. Um, there's yeah. nothing like sharing stuff with each other and sharing our stories with each other is a human experience. That's like ancient. And, and so even in my line of work, there's so much, so many conversations I've had that are just never going to be heard by anybody. Sure. Uh, and you, people, everyone knows that when it's happening, that it's a great thing, <laughs> a great thing to just like, um, be able to share your experiences and, and talk to each other, you know, genuinely. And so, yeah. um, yeah, stop texting, I guess is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> <laughs> and and in, in the era of COVID, as, as many of us are still continuing to stay home to keep everybody safe, um, reach out to some people you haven't talked to in a while, um, you know, get on the phone with them. Um, I know sometimes we get zoomed out and we get exhausted, um, but we do have somehow, some way, extra time in our hands um, from not being able to participate in things like being stuck in traffic or going to the gym. Um, 
So make make the best of that time. And I think uh, reflect on how we want to remember 2020 by um, as the seminal moment, I think, in U.S. and in world history that um, our kids and our grandkids will ask us about. And so, uh, James, I want to thank you for making time for us on the show. I know it is uh, way late over in, in New York. Um, and I, and I want to help close out the show, or I would ask you to help out close it, help you to close out the show in in our signature format by completing the Dear Asian Americans letter. As I mentioned to you earlier, and as most of our listeners know by now, as much of this it was a project for myself, it is a gift to my daughter and for all of our Asian American young folks and everybody in our community to write love letters through a conversation to help celebrate, support, and inspire all of us. And so. If you could share what you would like to share with the Asian American community by completing the letter, Dear Asian Americans. This might not be the most fun thing uh, that people want to hear, but I would say you are not a business. And, you know, sometimes we hear this phrase like corporations are not people. And I think people can wrap their head around that pretty easily. It's like, of course, of course, corporations are not people. What I find it's harder for people to wrap their head around is like people are not corporations. Uh, and the world wants us to be. They want us to be economic units. They want us to be producers of content, producers of value and of money in particular. And they also want us to be consumers of, of all those things. But I just feel the, the more that life goes on and the more that I'm exposed to and the more that I actually spend time with people, I find that the moment you snap out of that mindset of like, you have to be a business, you have to be growing and building and doing all these things, like a lot of things become possible when you don't have to satisfy that logic. Um, they don't become easier. <laughs> like they actually become <laughs> much harder, but, but they, they, there are things that become possible that just didn't exist to be totally honest. And what I'm saying here is I'm not saying that like money is not important, right? There's a lot of privilege that comes into this statement. Um, so it's not about that. And it's definitely not that like if at your job, right, there's a racial inequity and the way you're compensating, like justice is justice, right? And then unrecognized work is, is unfair. It's unrecognized work, simple fact. But I think coming from it more personally for me, I feel if you stop and maybe this isn't true for other people, but every time I stop and I think about anyone I've ever cared about, any person I've ever really deeply respected, living, dead, whatever, any artistic work that I personally have, have just found to have moved me and sticks with me for my entire life, any community I've ever spent time with and resonated with, none of them were ever motivated by profit, by behaving like a business, creating an empire, like any of these things that are so deeply ingrained in like the American idea. Uh, and they're not even defined by success, to be honest, in a lot of ways. And so that is something that just becomes more and more true for me over the years. Uh, now come back and see where I'm living in 20 years and maybe <laughs> it'll prove to have been very bad uh, conversational advice. But I think, uh, you know, the things that we care about, the things that we can do for each other, the things that we can do with each other, um, live outside of business models. Um, and the business models are just a tool. Uh, money is just a tool. And um, so many of the things I think that we end up wrapping our identity and conversations in, whether that's the intergenerational expectations or the doctor lawyer thing, like, I actually think a lot of it just deeps, a lot of it, I think, just kind of 
um, at its root is a sense of being trapped by like, you only know how to live in certain ways in America. And then it's always about that money and that security because we're not really caring for each other in other ways. So yeah, I think that it, it's really important to hold a space that just is a, about you and, and your relationships with other people. I think that's beautiful. And we can probably spend another 75 minutes talking about just that piece and then how we should strive to live and how we should look at the world because I think we're always getting constant reminders that um, the other way may not be the way that's going to help us move forward as a society. Um, James, thank you for doing what you do. We, we barely even got to talking about your documentary series, award-winning badass documentary and, and the work that you do outside of self-evident, but the work that you're doing through self-evident and other projects, I think is really giving hope, permission and inspiration speaking for myself, even to know that our stories matter, that our stories deserve attention and that our, that our stories deserve a place in the world of podcasting and beyond because it matters. And simply for that reason, because it matters. Um, you know, we'll see if it's economically viable. We'll see if the major players give us space. We'll see all these other questions, but primarily their stories worth telling because there are stories and we should never let anybody else ever stop believing that our stories matter. So I know it's hard. I know it's hard for all of us to produce and to edit and to countless hours behind the scenes that, um, folks don't really get to see other than the finished product. So kudos to you. Thank you for doing what you do. Uh, please send my best wishes to the rest of the self-evident team. Thank you again for helping us our, with our research project. And until we can hang out in person and share real stories in a non-digital way, I, I wish you well. Thanks so much, Jerry. Um, I could say all the same things back to you. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I have to just say thank you for doing the research and engaging everyone else in these conversations and in, in the bigger thought process of like where we are in building a kind of power for the audience and for the people who um, don't need any other reason. Just like you said, whenever you have a conversation with someone, it, it exists and people can hear it and it has served a purpose right at that moment and every moment that someone listens to it. And so that alone is great. If, if there's other things, uh, as I know you are pursuing to make this sustainable, to make it monetizable and, and to, to grow and create more opportunities. That's amazing. But as you just said, once you have the conversation and you create access to it, then something really special and irreplaceable has been done, I think. So let's, uh, so I'm, I'm really happy to hear that from you and, and happy just to be a part of all of this. It's been fun and it does take a village. Big, big shout out while we're on the topic of our research paper to Katie, to Joanna, to Marva, and to Abita um, from our team um, for really yeah. doing a lot of hard work um, in collecting data and collecting interviews and, and putting it all together. If you're listening to this, um, we're, we're getting ready to a point where we can share the story and then share with you just so many facets of Asian American podcasting, the stories, the players, the economics, the trends, um, and, and we want to make it, we want to empower creators to use that to inspire them to press go. We also want to prove to the industry and to outsiders 
that we are a force that is coming, that is already here and sharing our Asian American stories. And so that, you know, we just want to grow the pie. Uh, we want to play a small role in helping more people turn on their microphones, start publishing themselves because we will never, ever, ever exhaust Asian American storytelling. James, come back anytime you want on the show. We, we can we can talk all things. I think we'd love to have you um, around election time and get your take on things. And um, uh, be well. I think New York is, is far ahead in um, COVID recovery and, and life getting back to as, as normal-ish as we can, much more so than us out here in LA. But um, yeah, take care of yourself. Be well and, and uh, look forward to hearing your voice on the upcoming season two of Self Evident. Thanks and, and stay safe. We have a, a lot of voices uh, we're trying to bring uh, into the stories and, and are always just doing our best like you, trying to, trying to show the spectrum of uh, our experiences. So thanks, stay safe. And I, I really appreciate the chance to be here. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in. Uh, that was a really, really great and fun conversation with James. Um, really heartwarming and really um, inspired to know that there are fellow um, amazing human beings like James in the podcasting space, sharing out Asian American stories. Uh, the second season of Self-Evident now is available wherever you listen to podcasts. So highly encourage you to go search for it and listen to all the great work that James and his team are doing. And make sure that you're following us on social media as well at Dear Asian Americans across all the social platforms. And if you haven't yet, please do subscribe to the show whatever on whatever platform that you might be listening to us on. If you have anything you want to share with me, you can shoot us a DM to the Dear Asian Americans inbox on Instagram or shoot me an email at hello at DearAsianAmericans.com or just head over to the website DearAsianAmericans.com and there is a form where you can send me a note. Thanks again for tuning in. Make sure you are registered to vote. Make sure you are voting. Do your own research. Make the best informed decision for you, your family, and our country. I wish you well. I wish you happiness and health. I'll see you next time here on Dear Asian Americans. Thanks again for tuning in. This has been Jerry. Be well.